Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. The more we get to know our donors, the more we understand the value giving has to them. And when we understand that and internalize that, we start to realize that, oh, I'm not selling anyone anything. episode 33 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Cindy Wagman. Cindy is the president and founder of The Good Partnership, a values-driven, social justice-informed consultancy that's working to unlock the potential of small nonprofits through fundraising. When I first met Cindy, I was blown away by the similarities in our work. Cindy really understands the way that the stories in our head hold us back from being the fundraiser we were always meant to be. And as we talk about in this episode, while there are lots of things that a small nonprofit needs, there is nothing actually more important than addressing the limiting beliefs we have around money, fundraising, and the stories we tell ourselves about our own capabilities. There is so much inside this episode that you all are going to love, and I could go on and on, but let's dive into the good stuff so that you can meet Cindy. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with my friend, Cindy Wagman. Hi, Cindy. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited for this conversation. I feel like ever since we first talked, I just found someone who is so immersed in some of the same thinking and questions that I am around fundraising. And I'm really just so inspired by your work. So why don't we just start with you giving a little intro into who you are and what brings you to this moment? Oh my goodness. That, I don't know where to start. I'm going to start with, I fell in love with fundraising many, many years ago. Actually, before I was even a working professional, I was in school. I volunteered a lot in the nonprofit sector and I discovered you could be a fundraiser. And so I decided when I was probably about 20 years old, that's what maybe even 19, 19, 20 years old, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I've basically been doing that my whole life. And when I started The Good Partnership almost seven years ago, I knew I wanted to work with small organizations. And so understanding that and having worked in small organizations before, it really took me down a path of learning what's blocking small organizations from fundraising success. It's not being small. It's not a lack of brand recognition or fancy marketing or celebrity endorsements or big gala, all the things that small organizations like to point to. Fundamentally, it's mindset. It is a feeling and belief that our work is less than, or we shouldn't get paid to do the work. 
it's myths that are perpetuated in society about the value of our contributions. And all of that prevent us from taking meaningful action towards fundraising. And so that's what I'm focused on now. I love it. And gosh, I wish I had your work 15 years ago because it's true. We come up with so many stories or we have so many stories readily available about what's holding us back. And it's interesting because I feel like even with you and I who talk a lot about this, it can be really hard for folks to take that moment to say, what are the stories I'm telling myself or to get out of that. No, no, no. It really just is that I have too many responsibilities or really just is that I can't get my board to fundraise with me. What do you find to be really successful in helping organizations like ask that first, maybe reflection question that starts to open them up to the possibility that perhaps it's deeper? Mm -hmm. So the first, I usually find that One of the biggest things I recommend organizations do is meet with their donors just to get to know them and have that conversation. Who are you? I'm very clear. You're not asking for money. Your job is to listen. I don't want you to bring any materials or presentation or leave behind anything like that. And I say this and I repeat this advice over and over and over again. And I say, you can do this with 15, 20 minutes every morning. Just reach out to a few people, follow up with a few people and you're golden. And then I say, okay, like, are you doing this? Because that to me is the point where you can't say that you don't have time for 15, 20 minutes a day. You can't. And I teach people how to use their time better and all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally, if you're not prioritizing fundraising for your organization with this very simple and highly impactful task, we need to talk, right? We need to say, what's going on? What are the stories? What are you afraid of, right? There's often stories, as you know, because you and I have talked about all these things and we're so in sync with all of it, is a story is how our thoughts and feelings or emotions connected to form beliefs. And and we interpret the world, which is what a story is, through those beliefs. And so what's preventing you from reaching out. And there's different stories. Everyone has a different thing. Sometimes it's, I don't know what to do in these meetings. That comes up a lot. Even if I say, all you're doing is having a conversation, ask a few good questions, hear a few good questions to start with. It's not about the tactics, right? It really is fundamentally, often that comes down to a feeling of imposter syndrome or questioning their leadership. So there's all these deeper mindset issues that come up, that is one of the most effective tools I've found to figure out, is this a block or are you legitimately busy? But even if you're legitimately busy, we can all offload work. We can all choose where we spend our time. And very often in small nonprofits, it's not on fundraising. Mm. I love that. And it's interesting. It makes me think about this episode we did with Dr. BJ Fogg around behavior and habits. And he's like, okay, anytime you're not taking the action, the first question to ask yourself is how can you make that action easier to do? And how can you get that so, 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 so easy? So there's literally no possible real logistical friction. And then if you're still not doing it, 
then it's related to the other axis, which is motivation, which is the relationship between hope and fear. And so if you can't do like, you're right, we make time for tons of different 15 to 20 minute tasks. And oftentimes I feel like, and I'm curious what you think about this. Can I think back to when I was a small shop executive director and just how many things we're juggling and how difficult sometimes it can feel to not be making progress on the big things, like the big things that we're trying to do or accomplish. And so I feel like there were times where I took those other little actions that had more tangible check boxes or felt more accomplishments because they helped me feel good and maybe have a dopamine hit or have those moments of, oh, I had a successful day. Whereas if they're having these more open-ended relationship conversations, relationship building conversations, they're having a harder time or I was having a harder time translating that into results or even my belief around results. How do you work with folks around those pieces? Because I can imagine it comes up in your work a lot too. Yeah. I want to take that in a slightly different direction when we can come back to it. But what you said, I think really resonated with me in terms of the idea of the dopamine hit and these small wins or focusing on the things that are, we're comfortable with, quite frankly, that we know we will get results. And some of that is how do we shift that? But my approach and what I'm working on learning right now is looking at how the neural pathways in our brains are keeping us stuck because what happens is we develop these shortcuts, right? We go about the world every day, making tens of thousands of decisions. 90% of them are unconscious and they're developed because of these shortcuts we make in our brains. And so what happens when we try to do something new and we don't get quick results then our brain actually gets pretty angry and it makes it harder for us to do those things. So I think we're getting to where you were, what you were asking. But to me, part of it is we have to train our brains and we actually have to rewire those shortcuts. And it is difficult, but it also doesn't have to rely on those sort of dopamine hits or those quick successes, or we redefine what success looks like. So just celebrate when you actually do the work, when you reach out and have a great donor meeting, that's worthy of celebration, right? We can build in. I used to see a nutritionist or a naturopath, I don't know what she was, but she said, if you're struggling and you need a dopamine hit, do 10 jumping jacks. (laughs) Like how we can give ourselves that can be changed and we can teach ourselves. But fundamentally, we still need to understand that our brains are going to make it difficult for us to change our behaviors. That is why habits are so hard, right? And there's so much great research on like how to form habits. And there's a very clear path to do it. And it feels hard. It's like, yes, I'm trying to cut down on my drinking. I know last night at dinner, I shouldn't have had that glass of wine. I didn't need it, but I was in a social setting and my brain kicks into autopilot and I'm like, I'm going to do it. And part of that is, of course, the high of feeling like, okay, I'm rewarding myself. I'm doing something fun, especially after almost two years of a pandemic. I want to have fun. But I know intellectually that I made the decision not to drink before I went out. I sat at that table and said, no, I'm not going to do it. 
And then I still did it. And so we have to redefine what those shortcuts or what that autopilot is for us to be able to really see lasting change, right? Because we can all do something. Do you, do you know the show, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Yes. So, you know, she's in the bunker and she's like, I can do anything for what does she say? Like 10 seconds or 10 minutes or one minute. I don't know what it is, but it's like, we can all do one thing for a little bit of time, but we need to make lasting change. We need to keep doing those things. And that requires fundamentally shifting our foundations. And again, how we approach fundraising fundamentally. Okay. Wow. There's so many directions I want to go in what you just said. So I'm curious, can we go back to that piece about our brain being unhappy when we don't see quick results, particularly when we've forced ourselves to do something that wasn't the natural pathway, perhaps. Talk to me a little bit about that and how you prepare your brain for that. Mm -hmm. So I always give the example, because to me, it really hits home. And most people experience this. When I've, and I remember this so clearly, starting a new job and driving there for the first time and being so aware I don't have the radio on. I have back in the day, I had my map quest printed out. Uh, Me <laughs> so too. Myself, yeah. <laughs> and you go, you drive that path and you're on the highway. I'm looking at every single sign. Is that my exit? Is that my exit? I'm hyper aware of my surroundings, right? And that's what it's like the first time we experience something. But then after a month or two on the job, I've got my favorite podcast playing like yours or mine, or for me, I love singing along to like 90s music and you kind of zone out until you end up at the office, right? And that is exactly what it feels like for our brains to operate on autopilot. We only look for outliers. Something happened strange that I wasn't anticipating. So my brain will focus on that. Otherwise it's relaxed. It's easy. And then I I remember so distinctly, I had a meeting near my office with a donor and I got in my car from home and I went and started driving. And of course, 90% is the same driving route. And I end up at my office, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. And so then let's say I start a new job for the first 21 ish days. When I leave the house and get into the car, my brain is pulling me to the old office. Okay. That's, and I have to have that habit of going to the new office for 21 days for both of the pathways in my brain, the, the circuits that connect and allow the neurotransmitters to flow through at that 21 days, they're about equal. So my brain can be pulled in either direction. Then at around 67 days, the new ones become dominant and the old one actually disconnects. It no longer becomes a shortcut. And so what happens in that first 21 days, it feels uncomfortable because our brain is like, this isn't easy, right? And our brain is there to protect us and keep us safe and to make life easy. And so everything feels harder during that time. Everything is just like, oh, that's not what I want. You're making me work hard. And so it really requires consistency and how we rewire the brain. There's different ways to do that, but we have to make that new reality or our goals safe and easy for our brain. 
And so part of that is habits. Part of that is practicing. And I know you have some really great tools in your programs around people practicing things and getting comfortable with the unknown. And there's also some really cool science around visualization, right? Because our brains, I guess it's Descartes who's famous. I think therefore I am. But actually you can visualize a lot of that success and train your brain to feel safe and easy in your desired changes. So there's lots of stuff there. (laughs) I hope that answers your question. Yeah. And we had Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett on the show as well, who wrote How Emotions Are Made. And she talks a lot about our brain is predicting things into the future in order to conserve metabolic energy, which is what you're talking about, right? Like our brain just wants to go on autopilot because our goal is to spend the least amount of metabolic energy at any given point. And uncertainty typically creates a state of arousal that then we perceive as stress or anxiety. And that is us burning a ton of metabolic energy. And this is interesting on the podcast with her, accidentally, we got onto the topic of chronic pain because she had just had back surgery and chronic pain was something that I dealt with for a long time and actually ended up like after seeing every doctor and every healer ended up curing it with this app called Curable, which is around the brain-body connection, really leans on that neuroscience and required a tremendous amount of self-talk to really rewire those pathways. And one thing that I think you'll just be interested to hear that they talk about, it's based on this book, How to Heal Your Back, which was one of the first scientists who really showed this brain-body connection and that chronic pain is our bodies starting to be predictive and sensing pain, even when the injury is actually gone, but our body has gotten so used to taking any discomfort and believing that it means there's a threat there that it starts to send off all of our pain things, which I just think is such an interesting thing for folks to think about. If your brain can create pain because of a misinterpreted stimulus, like just think about what that means in terms of the emotional pain it predicts us into because of stimuli that come up in fundraising that trigger these underlying beliefs. Yes. And okay. Part of me wants to talk about my relationship because I feel like that's (laughs) so relevant because we all, I mean, my husband and I joke about this. Like we interpret each other's behaviors differently than the other person intended that behavior because we anticipate that. But aside from that, we all in this sector, I would say go through our time in this sector with constantly being told fundraising is like selling out. It's begging. It's icky. We have to sell our soul. We have to add on, add on. And like people don't want to give to us. It's twisting their arm. And when we hear these stories over and over again, right, that becomes our brain is anticipating exactly as you said, no way am I going to be doing those things? I can already tell, Hey, I'm going to feel bad. And then we, that becomes a story of us being bad at fundraising. Our brain is like, no, 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 you're not good at this. And what happens, which is also crazy, is our brains interpret the world through our beliefs and our self-identity. So if we keep hearing that fundraising is gross and I'm bad at it, even 
if I look at your fundraising, like, damn, you're doing good. You're going to be like, oh my goodness, we suck because there are very few facts in this world. Most of it is our brain interpreting information that aligns with our existing beliefs and identity and emotions. And so this is why I think it's so fundamental. And I'm so happy to meet you because so few people are talking about this in our sector, but it is so fundamental to our success. And if we don't address it, it's detrimental, but it takes work to work to correct, but it's not impossible. And just the power that if we do this work that we can have for our mission is just, I get so excited. And that's what I want for, especially I work with small organizations, right? Like if we can unleash that, we can have this movement of small organizations who are just like out there kicking butt and raising money and doing great things. So yeah, I'm excited. And just so much happier in their day-to-day. I mean, I feel like for me, that's like, these fundraisers deserve to be joyful and proud of this incredible work that they're doing. And instead they're beating themselves up. And one thing I want to say is I'm sure there are people listening to this and they're like, okay, but I did actually have a negative experience with a donor once. And what I want to say is sure, me too. I've had really uncomfortable moments with donors or donors who have said out loud some of those narratives and those beliefs, but they are actually the outliers. But because the narrative is predominant in our sector, we use those outlier experiences to reinforce the narrative instead of recognizing actually the whole narrative can change and they can be the outliers. Sure, we're all going to sometimes have negative experiences just as a business owner. And I'm sure you experienced this too. You know, somebody wrote me a really mean email one time about this sale that I did around power partners. And I was like, you know, you have a lot of beliefs about money that are coming out in this email and a lot of your own, but I don't actually believe that selling something is bad. I believe my program provides a service and a solution and I'm so proud of that. And so I think that we have the ability, but I could have gotten real small there and be like, oh my God, it felt so too salesy. And it's all about, I think, what we believe to be true about what we're doing. And we have so much more control than we think. But I love what you're saying, which is that it takes work and it takes practice and it's going to be uncomfortable at first to shift your beliefs. Because I think sometimes when we can get too into this toxic positivity, folk think they can buy a mug with a positive affirmation (laughs) mantra (laughs) and they're going to start to feel different. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I want to even go a little deeper into what you said, because I, yes, so much of it is true. And we mentioned like that one bad donor experience and our brains do overemphasize the negative, like nine times more than the positive. But the other thing is because we've internalized all these beliefs about fundraising and fundraising is icky and fundraising is salesy, which we all think is a bad thing. And again, good sales and good fundraising makes everyone feel good. It's a win-win, but we don't see it that way. And what happens is before we even have that interaction, who we pick to meet with, how we approach that meeting, all of those things, we are setting ourselves 
up for that bad meeting, right? We are saying, okay, I have to look at my donor base and find out who has the most money and that's who I'm going to meet with. Okay. Or I have one opportunity to meet with this person, but I need to sneakily convince them to actually take time to meet with me. So I'm going to tell them one thing, but I'm going to spend their time doing something else. I'm clapping you guys right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so all of these steps that are built on all these harmful myths in our sector around fundraising, they set us up for the exact scenario that is going to reinforce our terrible beliefs, right? Because they're all built on this structure, the system of us not liking fundraising. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Okay, I'm going to get whiplash from how much I'm nodding my head right now. But I think what you just said, there's a few things about what you just said that I think are so important. I just want to drive this point home. I talk a lot about lenses. So we are all seeing the world through our lenses. This is what you were talking about before, like through our set of beliefs and who we are and all these things. So we don't realize that because we're just seeing the world. But I have pink glasses on, you have green glasses on. And until we start to recognize that we are actually wearing lenses, we take what we see as fact. We're like, this is objective information. That meeting was bad because I felt this way, right? Or all these things, which we know from all the science and the study is not true. That two people report back about the same experience wildly differently. Their memory is imprinted with different components of that interaction, all those things. But we have to take that moment and be like, oh, I'm wearing glasses. You are always wearing glasses. And those glasses are made up of your perceptions, beliefs, lived experience, all of those things. And so until you start to look at what's inside your lens, it's so hard to do this work. And it also really reinforces what you're saying, which is that you're going to make every decision based on the shade of green that you see or the shade of pink that you see. And that's going to lead you to a pink room and it's going to lead you to a green room. And so there's no way without that look inside to stop having these self-fulfilling prophecies around setting ourselves up for these uncomfortable experiences. You're totally right. The most awkward fundraising experiences I have had were when I was afraid of an interaction. And so I wasn't totally transparent, even about what was happening in that meeting. And then it felt bad. And of course it felt bad. I felt bad before the meeting. (laughs) So of course it was going to feel bad after. And, you know, I say this in my masterclass, but I always felt like this car salesperson energy from fundraising. And when I started to really unravel that, and I was like, okay, why is it even that we don't like car salespeople? And I was like, oh, I think it's because we believe that the car salesperson wants to sell us the car, whether or not it's the right car for us. 
And that feels really uncomfortable. And that's the same thing with fundraising. If we are just trying to get the money first, right? And we're focused on who has the most money and everything's about the money. And we're going into these meetings where we're saying we're not going to talk about money, but the whole time we're thinking about money. That is exactly why we then show up with that car salesperson energy because we have a one track mind, but we're not being totally honest about where we're even meeting the person. Exactly. The fact that we feel like we are that person. And the irony is like the solution is also the prevention. And so, you know, these meetings that I talk about all the time, I really feel like I talk about them all the time. One is that it gives us information. We get to know our donors. We understand what fundraising will resonate with them, how we can build a strong fundraising program and all these amazing things come out of the meetings. And so in some ways, that's the solution. But the other part is that the more we do these meetings, the more we get to know our donors, the more we understand the value giving has to them. And when we understand that and internalize that, we start to realize that, oh, I'm not selling anyone anything. I'm not selling you something you don't need, let alone selling you anything. We're on a journey together to change the world. And it just so happens we're on the same path. And so in that way, we start to actually build the knowledge and understanding of what good fundraising looks like for our organization. And the more we do it, the less barriers we set up for ourselves because we start to really understand that, oh, our donors like us. <laughs> they like me for who, and I mean, I, 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 they like me, they really like me, but like, A, they like the work of your organization. And that, I mean, I'm authenticity is such a buzzword, but I've worked in organizations where there's this feeling that we have to present a certain way in front of donors. And I've never subscribed to that. If someone is not willing to meet with your frontline staff because they're not polished or present a certain way, they're not the donor for you. And so we can talk about a negative reinforcing loop, which is what we've been talking about before in terms of having the mindset and then making decisions that reinforce that mindset. And then it spirals into, we just stop fundraising or we just feel awful fundraising. The same thing happens on the positive side, where if we start to do these meetings and get to know our supporters, get to know why they support us, we can build fundraising that aligns with our mission and with what our donors are passionate about and really become more and more and more successful. So that's the spiral up. So yeah, that's why I love donor meetings so much because they're actually really powerful tools. Hmm. I love that. And I'm curious, I'm going back to what we were talking about before around the amount of time it takes to shift a belief system. I mean, one of the things I feel like is hard is when we're inundated in a sector where we're seeing so much of the other belief system all the time or the historical belief system all the time, it can be really hard then to recognize that there actually is a different belief system we can hold. And I think when you and I first met, we were so excited and we had this moment of being like, oh my gosh, our businesses are not in competition. Like everyone needs to be talking about this. Like we want everyone to be having this conversation. And so I think it's so important. I wish folks were seeing these shifting narratives 
in all the different places and they're not. And so there's still a lot of work to do there. But one of the things that's making me think about is sometimes we have these transformational life experiences or these moments where our belief system gets rocked fast and we can never unsee perhaps what we saw. And I'm wondering about that. And I'm thinking about how we can create, and and maybe it is the donor meeting. Maybe that's part of the catalyst that you're finding with folks. But I'm curious, what do you know to be true about that from a neural pathways perspective? Are there types of moments or types of scenarios in which our belief system can be rewritten really quickly because of something we're exposed to? I actually don't know. The the example that comes up for me, but is not really helpful to this is trauma. And I think that's what happens a lot and why we get stuck in negative mindset because that is what you described to me is my understanding of trauma, right? We have this heightened experience that doesn't resolve itself in the moment. And so every time we go through it again, we get stuck at that height and the trauma, uh, this is many years ago, I learned a little bit about trauma counseling. And the idea is you work with people to find a resolution to that experience so that they have the tools to go up and come back down instead of getting stuck up. I don't actually have any positive examples of that. I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question. And and perhaps it's never a one-time thing, but I think about how many, like when we think about progress around civil rights or like the Black Lives Matter movement or the LGBTQ movement, for many people who maybe weren't exposed to certain issues earlier, there was And we know about this in the negative way too, sometimes from false media. People are exposed to one source of information and it turns into a belief really quickly or can shift a belief really quickly. And so maybe that's just Mm. something I'm pinning for myself to explore. (laughs) No, no. Okay. So I actually, now that you frame it that way, there is one thought I have, which is around stories. And this wouldn't be surprising to you, but... What happens when we are engaged in listening to stories is that we, our empathy is heightened, right? We become the subject of the story. And so this is a really effective tool in fundraising. That's why everyone talks about using stories in fundraising. I do think that's why something like the murder of George Floyd really catapulted the Black Lives Matter movement because it was around before, but we could all, there was a singular story that all of a sudden, I think a lot of people could really connect with. So when we hear stories and think about sitting in a movie theater, watching Disney, Pixar, whatever, all we feel the whole experience in our body and in our mind. We empathize, we become the main character or the hero who's on this journey and we feel the ups and we feel the downs. And that can be a very transformative experience. And so I definitely feel like stories have a role to play in that where we connect in this deeper way, which really pulls into our empathy and emotions into it, that does have the power to mobilize people. And we've seen that with movements. We've seen that with fundraising. We see that with any charismatic speaker. Now it has the power to do good and bad, but I do think that is a tool 
that we can leverage for ourselves, but also for fundraising. Yeah, I think it's such a good point. And maybe even like a takeaway for an organization listening to this is share stories of positive fundraising experiences with your team. And even probably the process of storytelling and the process of hearing those stories is going to start to continue to reinforce that pathway because we do more often share the negative thing that happened than the positive. And that's related to a lot of other pieces. But the more we can share stories of connection and alignment and things like that, the more our beliefs will continue to shift towards those narratives. Exactly. And my first fundraising job was at a women's shelter that was run as a feminist collective. And fundraising was like, money was the root of all evil. Fundraising was just like, oh, you know, that little like Cindy, (laughs) good luck to her. Um, (laughs) One of the things I did is actually like bring our donors and staff together Right. And so often fundraising in organizations is a siloed function. And so it reinforces that idea. I don't have access to those good stories. I mean, I can tell them to you, but even better, let me give you an opportunity to experience that. Let me give you an opportunity to meet our donors and break bread or what have you and actually get to know them as humans, as people. So often in fundraising, we other donors, like the bank machine or all these other problematic. And there are donors out there who can be harmful to organizations. I don't want to ignore that or undermine that. But for the most part, there are plenty of donors who are amazing for your organizations. But we, within our organizations, we put up this barrier that we can't connect with them. And so to get all your staff and everyone around you and invested in fundraising, start to break down those silos and connect on a human to human level. Mm, Yeah. I love that you shared that. And I totally agree. I feel like one of the places we forget or we fail to activate our empathy inside the sector is with our donors. And we don't access that same type of deep relationship, particularly for outside of the fundraising department or singular person or whatever it is. And I do, I think that's so important. And I'll also say when I've worked as a consultant with organizations and I'll have the marketing team come in for something and they'll say things sometimes, but I'm not doing any of the fundraising, right? Or like, I could never do what the fundraisers do. And I will address that really early on in my engagement with them and say, we don't talk negatively about fundraising here. We don't believe that fundraising is a bad thing here. And we need to commit at the very beginning to talking about it really differently because it plays such a huge role. We think it's like, I've been secretly, half secretly tracking when I see fundraising talked about in movies, I record it on my phone. And it's just so, I mean, I'm kind of putting together this like compilation of where do these stigmas come from? We actually, more than we realize, see fundraising referenced in all of this pop culture in really negative ways. And it plays a role in the more awareness we can even have about that and be like, that's not true. I always pause the movie and turn, turn to my husband and be like, that's not true at all. It's not like that. <laughs> I love that. We have to have awareness around the fact that these things play a role in how we feel. So if we're feeling uncomfortable, that's okay. That's normal because we've been inundated with all of these stories and we have the power to change it. 
I just want to add to that because the other story we have in our sector or in pop culture that is deeply affecting our sector is our value as individuals to the work. We look at the overhead conversations that are very much reinforced by some very big and popular charities, right? In Canada, there was We Charity, which has, I don't know what's happening with them right now, but all this belief that like, the whole problem, Charity Water, same thing. And yeah, I'm going to throw some shade to these organizations that, oh, the other one I see are like entrepreneurs who cover all the overhead costs of their like pet project organization, nonprofit, and then they fund money for the projects. And all of these reinforce the idea uh, that our work in and of itself are as humans doing the administrative running these organizations doesn't have value. That it's not something that people want to support. That is so harmful, right? That is hurting us and our beliefs around the value of our work. It's hurting our organizations and our ability to do good things. And so I, that one just, I mean, Dan Pilata is famously given the TED talk on it, but that's a trend I actually see increasing that is really, really, again, very out there in pop culture, like very much celebrated that these organizations have no overhead. And it's not that they have no overhead. It's just that they have some really wealthy connections that are covering the cost. So yeah, I have a big problem with that. So it's interesting what you're saying, because this has been something that I have been grappling with for a little bit here. I also think the 100% model and a lot of the language that surrounds it is really damaging for the sector. And I have recently been thinking about our focus, like with Charity Water in particular, our focus on their 100% model, when they've also demonstrated this wildly successful 0% model. So they have the well, which has grown to a huge number of families that was not an original network and 0% of that money goes to projects. And I've been just thinking recently about what if we focused on that? What if we were just starting to be like, wow, what did they do there? can we shift our own narrative around what we admire, which is how did they build a huge program around none of the money going to projects? To me, that is inspiring. That is so interesting. Absolutely. And there's interesting organizations here having conversations with donors. We had on our podcast, Anil Gokhale from the Toronto Foundation, and they have a whole program where they're basically training the next generation of philanthropists. And part of that is saying, listen, folks, if you want real social change, you can't just fund the big, sexy organizations. You got to fund the organizations by that are led by community members that are doing the grassroots work. And some of them don't have charitable status. And that's where the change is happening. So there are some really interesting conversations happening in our sector. Absolutely. And I love, like, that's a whole other conversation because there's so much opportunity And fundamentally, to me, both of those things speak to our ability to connect with and go on that journey with our donors. 
to have sometimes difficult conversations or to get so excited about the potential of our work together. And so all of those things, and I think those are two great examples of what can be possible when you shift the narrative and you understand that our people are the lifeblood of our work, that we need systems. And oh my goodness, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about (laughs) the need to invest in systems and technology and infrastructure to make our work actually scalable and more impactful and all those kinds of things. But to me, those start with connecting with your donors and really getting on the same page with them and building a relationship and building trust and going from there. So I guess that's a bit of a full circle moment. (laughs) No, I love it. And I think asking real and deep questions and being willing to go a step further and ask, I mean, I just interviewed this woman, Vanessa Bonds for the podcast who studies influence. And she talks about this really interesting research around how when we are in a position of power or perceived power, we underestimate our influence. And so we say things flippantly or throw a suggestion out there with no intention that we're directing the person to listen to us. We're just having a casual conversation. And we've really underestimated that the person across the table or across the Zoom is, okay, now I have to do that thing because this person in power said they liked the idea of a new truck. And so now I'm going to restrict their funding and I'm going to get a new truck because they said they liked the idea of a new truck. Instead of going back and saying, tell me about what the truck inspires in you. What gets you excited when you think about the truck? Oh, so what you really want to make sure is that we're able to distribute more lunches. Actually, the most impactful way for us to distribute more lunches is through blank and that being like your program and unrestricted. And so I think that's on us too. Yes, these narratives are out there. It doesn't mean that there's nothing we have to overcome, but I think we have so much power inside our small organizations to take conversations a step further with our donors. And we don't have to just keep running into that same. So many of our donors, gosh, they understand the need for technology and systems and all these things. They, they're, Many of them are running and working in companies that depend on them. And so I, you're totally right. I'm so with you. It's all about that real conversation, genuine connection, starting with donor conversations. I am, I'm all in. And of course, all that means showing up with the mindset that you are on the same page as your donors. You are working towards the same mission and that fundraising is not icky. And once we get there, like the rest will follow. It will totally follow. I mean, I have an organization we're chatting with right now. They have a donor who funded, who's funding them to hire a fundraiser. That is like the gold star of what we want in our sector. It's doable and it's out there, but it requires us to stop thinking about our function of fundraising as icky, because if we show up that way, we will never get our donors on board. Yes. Okay. I'm going to end us there. Tell everyone where they can find you, tell them about the book, all the things, and we'll make sure all the links are below as well. Amazing. You can connect with me at thegoodpartnership.com or most of our social like Instagram is The Good Partnership. And the book is on our website or raiseitbook.com. And yeah, I'm so excited for this because I feel like Mallory, you and I are on a similar path with this. And I feel like hopefully more people will start to be having these conversations. So yeah. 
such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Loved this conversation. so much I love from this conversation, but here are a few pieces I really want to put a pin in. What's blocking small organizations from fundraising success is not being small. It's not a lack of brand recognition, fancy marketing, celebrity endorsements, or a big gala, although those are a lot of the things we hear all the time. Fundamentally, it's mindset. The second thing I want you to walk away from this with is understanding that we need to understand that our brains are going to make it difficult for us to change our behavior. Mindset work is not easy work, and it's super important that we understand that there is going to be some very natural resistance to that. The third thing is there are a lot of harmful myths in our sector around fundraising, and they reinforce our negative beliefs. So we need to be aware of those and then constantly work to unwind them. All right, there is so much more where this came from. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to get access to all the show notes right now. You'll also find more information there about Cindy and how to connect with her. And you should definitely check out her book, Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraising Guide to Raising Money Without Selling Your Soul. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners, especially you and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.